Amen. You may be seated. Let me encourage you this time to join me in taking your copy of God's Word and turn to our passage for this morning, which we find in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. Proverbs 1, 8 through 19. We are, of course, continuing in our summer series on the book of Proverbs, this book of wisdom. So last Sunday, we looked at the first seven verses for the second time, but last week we looked at them to look at the intimacy of this wisdom. The wisdom in Proverbs is God's wisdom. It's given by Solomon to his son, but it was given to Solomon by the Holy Spirit. This is God's wisdom. And so wisdom is not just uh, you know, in our minds. It's not just supposed to be this head knowledge. It's a wisdom that goes from our minds to our hearts. It's intimate and it's meant to change us. God's wisdom is meant to shape us more and more into the image of Jesus because God's wisdom always points us to Jesus. He is the embodiment of God's wisdom. So there's an intimacy to God's wisdom that changes us. And in this intimacy, it's given to us in an intimate fashion. We see here in the book of Proverbs that Solomon talking to his son. Like we said, maybe like they're on their way to their favorite fishing hole. And uh, Solomon was sharing his wisdom with his son. But there's an intimate fashion in this that is from God the Father, our Abba Father, given to us as his children, who knows us. He loves us. He fashioned us. He created us. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. And so he comes alongside of us, puts his arms around our shoulders, and said, here's the wisdom you need in order to thrive in the life that I've created you for, the life that I have given to you. And so that brings us this morning to our next passage. We find Proverbs 1, 8 through 19. Let me pray for us as we come now together before God's word. Lord, this is, a, this is your word. This is your wise word. We are in this book of wisdom, but all of your word from Genesis to Revelation is filled with your wisdom. As we're here now in the book of Proverbs, we pray uh, specifically at the wisdom you've given here uh, that we will hear and we will understand. And then we walk out of here, it won't come dribbling out of our heads for us never to think of it again. But Lord, you would engrave it upon our, our minds and our hearts. And the Holy Spirit will take the chisel of your word and, and chisel it in there so we may continue to think on this and meditate upon it. So Lord, be at work in this way in us, be at work in me, and I will only speak your truth to your people this morning. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19, we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head, and dependence for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us. Let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. And we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us, and we will have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. 
Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of his possessors. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. You may know the name Thomas J. Jackson. You may know it more commonly, more famously as Stonewall Jackson who was considered to be one of the greatest generals the Confederacy had during the war between the states. And for many years, he was also considered to be one of the greatest military strategists that this nation has ever produced. Uh, But with the way culture is going now and tearing down statues, that's trying to be erased as well. That's a whole other issue for another time. But part of Stonewall's greatness was in his genius and how he did battle. The way he thought about battle, the way he uh, put together the strategy to battle, the way he uh, put the, in, in, enacted that strategy even during the midst of battle. Now he and his men, the Second Corps, uh, would strike hard and fast. Uh, they would outflank you uh, so they could better exploit your weaknesses and better attack your flanks. And they would do this in such a way where almost time and time again they would win. And they would win, they would win. And you go through the history of the Civil War and you find that these uh, Stonewall Jackson and his Second Corps uh, were instrumental in these decisive wins, were really, in a lot of ways, the reason why the battle was won. But he drove his men hard. As soon as the battle was done with, they would quickly move on to the next battle. Now, this is a tactic that Stonewall uh, learned at VMI, I'm sorry, at West Point, while he was a student. He went on to teach at VMI. He learned at West Point as a student, and then he saw under General Winfield Scott in the Mexican-American War. But he learned it. He saw it put into use, and then he took it and adapted it for good use in the war between the states. And it's generally agreed that's what made him so great and successful in the war, how he thought about it, how he went about it. The way he was willing to, to win the battle at all costs, how he would go about his maneuvers. And he would go after the enemy with everything he and his men had. But I think what makes Stonewall's greatness and genius even more interesting is found outside the military realm when we look at it through the lens of his faith. To know anything about Stonewall Jackson is to know that he was a devout Christian and a faithful Presbyterian churchman. He was known to be kind and gentle with his family and friends. He was faithfully in church every Sunday until the war, attending the Lexington Presbyterian Church. And even during the war, he was faithful to attend chapel services every Sunday. He, was, he went out and requested their own chaplain, and they got one in Reverend, Reverend Beverly Tucker Lacey, who was a Presbyterian pastor. It's even recorded that Stonewall was in his ties back to his church back in Lexington, Virginia. So Stonewall was the picture of a devout Christian and faithful Presbyterian churchman. Yet when faced with his enemy, he was quick to strike and determined to win at all costs. He was a faithful Christian, willing to do battle and to win at all costs. And that's the wisdom we see in this passage this morning. That in this wisdom passage in the book of Proverbs, the Christian life is called to be a violent life. 
Let me pause. Is everything okay? Hmm? We pause to make sure everything's okay. Is it our boy? Yeah. Everything's okay. Back to Stonewall Jackson. <laughs> I don't know if I want to know anything further past that. It's my <laughs> When you see all this movement, your wife is up and going. Is he locked in somewhere? We've got to move on, so let's, <laughs> let's take a moment, collect ourselves. Um, I almost like we should stop and restart and reset and just start over again. We should, yeah, okay. Coming back to Stonewall and Jesus, let's do that. The wisdom we find in the passage this morning is the wisdom we see Stonewall employing in battle. A faithful Christian who's willing to do battle and to win at all costs. The wisdom we have for us in our passage this morning is the wisdom of violence. I know that sounds strange to our ears because we think, uh, we think of the Bible's teaching on peace, right? When someone hits your cheek, what do you do? You turn the other cheek. You love your neighbor no matter what they may have done to you. We think of Jesus being called the Prince of Peace, right? And that's all true, of course. That's, that's the Bible. That's what the, that's what the Bible tells us. But we find the Bible also describes and prescribes violence in the Christian faith. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but he's also the Prince of Peace who says in Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That doesn't sound very peaceful, does it? I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. But the violence that Jesus is talking about, and the violence that our passage is talking about, is spiritual violence. It's not, it's not for us to go home, take up swords, and start running through downtown Winsburg, slashing people, right? We're talking about spiritual violence. And specifically, God's wisdom calls us to be violent against sin, because sin is violent against us. Biblical wisdom is that we are called to be violent against sin because sin is always violent against us. We may want to put our swords down, but sin never puts its swords down. We may want a peace treaty, but sin will never make a peace treaty with us. And when we read and say the Bible, we find that the Bible does not describe, let's say, how life ought to be, whether it describes how life is. So from the very beginning with the introduction of sin and the God's perfect creation, the Bible is clear in telling us how life really is. It's a very realistic look at life around us. And a large part of that, of that um, reality is that sin and Satan is actively at work. Very much actively at work against God's people to utterly destroy them. That's a testimony of Scripture. Over and over again, Sin and Satan is at work trying to destroy us. One pastor looking at his passage says it this way. Sin is trying to succeed by ignoring reality. The devil is trying to redesign the creation in his own way. 
And what this is, what, and these ways are done by being violent against our souls and against our faith. So we're called to fight back. We're called to be violent back. But what does that mean? What does the violence of wisdom entail? Well, we need to go to the beginning of it. Look again what it says in verses 8 and 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. The wisdom of violence begins at home. It begins with a godly father and mother who through study of God's word and faithfully obeying God in all manners of life teach God's wisdom to their children. They tell their children about their past experiences, about their past failures, and how they use God's wisdom to deal with them. They know their children, they know their strengths and their weaknesses, so they know how to best apply God's wisdom to where it's needed. Godly wisdom begins at home. It begins with parents who take God seriously, who take sin seriously, who take dying to sin seriously, and who take obedience seriously. So therefore they are serious in teaching their children the same. Godly wisdom of violence begins at home. Now what I'm going to say next, this isn't, this isn't meant to be a, a passive-aggressive this isn't meant to be a, a political statement as much as it is. It's a general observation. And an observation is this. The way that's prescribed, the way that is prescribed for our families in our day, age, and culture is the advocating of parenting. When you look at what our day, age, and culture is putting forth is the abdication of parenting, meaning that someone or something else is taking over the majority of the responsibility of parenting your children. And here's what I mean. Let's think about it this way. Let's think about the average family schedule during the school year. Wake up between 6 and 7. Children in school from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m.-ish, right? This is uh, five days out of the week, nine months out of the year. Parents, uh, most parents are working from 8 to 5. Children are playing sports and they're at school until later. Everybody's getting home sometime later on in the evening. Maybe there's enough time to, to maybe have a meal together, to talk about some of the major events. Then it's on to, to homework, relaxing, and then bed. And then you get to the weekend, and you sleep in. And we find more and more that then you get up and you go spend a day in the ball field. Or you catch up on chores. Or you're doing something else that keeps the family going and busy until Sunday evening and then you repeat all over again. And studies after studies have been shown or showed this that when you add up all the busyness of the average American family, generously, generously, a parent spends 150 minutes a day with their child. That's a generous amount. The more average amount is the average parent spends five hours a week with their child. So let's put that in a normal 24-hour cycle. Let's take away eight hours of sleep. We're all getting our full eight hours of sleep. Uh, 16 hours of the day. Eight of them, somewhere between six and eight of them spend at work at school, so on and so forth. At 16 hours a day, a parent spends 150 minutes of those with their child. 
Out of a normal seven-day week, a parent will spend five hours of that week with their children. Which means that the average American child will spend more time with someone else than their parents and their family. And that's the way it's prescribed to us. And that's not a passive-aggressive statement. That's just what we see out there. So the question becomes, what do we do at that time? What do we do with the 150 minutes a day we have with our children? What do we do with our five hours of face-to-face time with them each week? Well, for some of us, many of us, thank you. You <laughs> love getting an update on your child. Uh, anyways, um, what do you do at that time? Well, for what we find for, for many of us uh, is we hide behind our phones. Obsessively checking over social media. Or we gather in front of the TV and let our minds go numb. What do we do with the time we have with our children? It's interesting to note that one of the first things the book of wisdom deals with is our time with our family. One of the first things God's wisdom book deals with is time with our family. Parents, it's our God-given duties to know our children, to spend time with them, and to guide them in God's wisdom. That's the wisdom prescribed here. Every screen they can hide behind is actively working to pull them away from Christ and from you. It's not the world's job to raise our children. It's our job to raise our children, help raise our grandchildren, help with our families. It's our job to share with them God's wisdom to help their lives thrive in this world. Think about in military terms, we're to to provide a boot camp of wisdom, just without all the push-ups and yelling and wake up at 0400 hours. But how our children deal with Satan and sin, those two things that are trying to eternally kill our children are to be learned at home from godly parents and then reinforced at church every Lord's day. That's the wisdom of violence that's being prescribed here. See, Solomon is issuing a call to the younger ones to be attentive. Listen to your father and to your mother. But there's an implication there, isn't there? And the implication is that the fathers and mothers are providing wise instruction and teaching. So there's a need for Christian parents to take seriously and to seriously practice and follow the wisdom of God so they can pass it along to their children to help their children thrive in this sinful fallen world, to thrive in and for God's glory. I found this quote, Godly wisdom can be acquired only when a person pays attention to his father and mother, those who have been established by God to instruct him in the school of wisdom. That's our job. Our job as parents, our job as a family, grandparents, aunts, uncles, to help raise children in the wisdom of God. The thing is, Solomon is very quick to make sure we understand the blessings that come from this. In verse 9, he uses the metaphors of garlands and pendants. The garland is a symbol of victory. And pendants are a symbol symbol of luxury. So put together, very simply, what Solomon is saying 
is that when parents teach God's wisdom to their children and children learn to listen, then their lives will thrive. Their lives will thrive. Anyone who's a parent knows that teaching a child is very, very rarely a one and done, right? How many times have you tried to teach your child or grandchild or family member and, and right at the bat they go, okay, yeah, I totally got it. I'm going to apply this to my life. We're good to go. We're done, right? Um, if you have that, then you need to write a parenting book because the rest of us need to figure out how you've done that. We have to teach them multiple times. We have to deal with their failures. But when we do this in and through faith in God, then the chances are great that that child will live a life that thrives in the grace of God. So it's worth parenting this way. It's worth parenting God's way. You know, we've heard that saying that, you know, nobody gets to the end of their life and says, I wish I had spent more time at the office. I don't think any parent now, when they get to the end of their life, will say, you know, TV and Netflix and PlayStation did a really good job of raising my son. You know, social media did wonders for my daughter's self-esteem. Parents, it's our job to know God's wisdom and to practice that wisdom so we can help our children and families thrive in this life. So wise spiritual violence begins at home. And it begins at home because so much of life outside that relationship is riddled with sin. I want you to notice how, how the book of Proverbs describes sin. Come with us. Let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all our precious goods. We shall fill all our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. We lie and wait for blood. We set ambush for lives. It's pretty graphic. The book of Proverbs says here, right? Sin is violence. How violent has bloodlust? What sin wants to see, and a spiritual sin, it wants to see your blood spilt. It wants to stand on the edge of hell so it can delight in seeing people cast into the darkness of hell. It seeks to take all that's precious from you, not even leaving a scrap of any goodness in your life. That's what the wisdom says. That, that's sin. That, that's the work of Satan. There's nothing pleasant about it. There's nothing good about it. There's nothing redeeming about it. Sin and Satan seeks to toll devastation and destruction of all people, but especially of God's people. It's like, you know, like, again, pick up, go with the military theme this morning. It's like an army standing on the road to overtake you. You know you have that force in front of you, but they're also ready to ambush you on every side. They, it wants to encircle you and ensure your total destruction. That's sin and Satan. It wants nothing more than total devastation and destruction of all people. And this description, I believe, is tailored to us. Because this is God's word for his people. Because we of all people have the most to lose. We come to church on Sundays. And we hear about the grace of God. We hear about the goodness of God. We hear about the blessings of God. And Lord willing, you know that grace, you know that goodness, you know those blessings. So when we purposely choose the path of the wicked instead of the path of wisdom, we have that much more to lose. 
When we lay down our arms against Satan and sin, we have so much to lose. Total and utter destruction, devastation of us. And therein lays the great terrible irony that Christians who know the gospel, who know the goodness of God, who know about the terribleness of Satan, are the ones who can still try to be buddy-buddy with Satan and their sins. How many of us treat Satan and sins like Eddie Haskell? That's going to take us back a little bit, isn't it? Right? If you don't know Eddie Haskell, then your life is missing out. Right? That mischievous friend we know will get us in trouble, will entice us to do bad things, but we still hang out with them anyways. That sore relationship with sin and Satan will blind us to his bloodlust and how much Satan desires our death and total destruction to the point where we begin to excuse our sins away. Man, it's okay. It's okay if I get drunk every once in a while. It's the weekend. It's been a long week. Need to relax. Need to let go. As long as I don't drive, have somebody else drive me, as long as I'm at home or some buddies, what's the harm? I know the Bible says drunkenness is a sin, but me and Satan, we really like it. We like to have a good time, so what's the harm? I know the Bible speaks very clearly about sexual sin, but it just feels good. As long as I engage in it privately, nobody has to know about it, what's the big deal? Satan assures me it's not all that bad, it's just human nature, so I'm going to listen to him. How can something that feels so good be bad? I know gossip is a sin, but I got to know what's going on in Winsboro. And I got to make sure my friends know as well. Besides, Satan and I like to hear and know what's going on. So in the end, I kind of all wash it out. It's all good. You can add in any sin and how much you and Satan enjoy it together. And we find the great irony of the redeemed life. We know the sin. We have this idea of the cost. And yet we're like Dorothy and her friends on the yellow brick road. We just lock arms together and go skipping off to something bigger and better. And the more we choose to live like that, then one day we're going to look down and see that it's our spiritual blood that's pulling up around us and staying the ground at our feet. And we've been pulled that much closer to the edge of hell. And Satan and his minions have plundered so much spiritual good from our lives. And by that point, by God's grace, we will have to contend whether all that sin was worth it. And the answer will always be no. And God gives us this wisdom here so we can learn and live. Instead of live and learn. And we can take the wisdom here and learn of the dangers of it so we can avoid the danger of it. We understand what the Bible tells us about sin and Satan, why would we want to listen to him? Why would we want to listen to the very one who, who hates us to the very pit of hell itself? Why would we want to follow the very one who desires nothing more than your total destruction? Why would we choose to obey the one that wants nothing more than see your soul in hell? See, biblical wisdom tells us never mistake how much Satan and sin hates you. 
It wants to see your blood spill. It wants to see you in hell. It wants to destroy all that's good in your life. And that's why God's wisdom is so very clear here. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. We can understand that, right? This is the price to be paid for sin, and by all means, stay away. Will we put any family member in our car to go on a trip knowing there is a certainty that car would get to an accident? And there is a certainty our family member would be hurt and hurt bad and maybe even killed. Will we put them in that car? Absolutely not. We would not. So why would we not do everything in our power to keep us and our families from taking that spiritual path which may eternally kill them? Now I want us to notice real quickly whose wisdom says to stay away from sinners. That's a problem, isn't it? Because we're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So is this a call for us to be introvert hermits? Like we just leave here and go home we never see anybody again? No, that's not it. The sinners in mind here are those who are habitual chronic sinners, those who are non-Christians. Those are who Satan will use to call you to sin against your God. Those are the ones who follow after Satan because they choose not to follow after God. And the word if is used here, but it's more a matter of when. It's not, there's a certainty that sin and Satan will come after you. So we have to be violent against sin because it's violent against us. Like John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's a call to wise violence. So what is wise violence? How do we kill sin? We'll end with this. Biblical uh, wise, or the, the biblical wisdom of violence begins and ends with Jesus. Faith in who he is and what he has done for you and me. Faith in the one so that we recognize our sin for what it is. Because Jesus has shed his light of grace on it so we can know what sin really is. Through faith, we take our sin to Jesus for forgiveness because that is what he died on the cross for, to forgive us of these sins. In faith, we follow the wisdom of God because that wisdom is embodied in the person of Jesus. That wisdom always points us to Jesus and helps us live in the light of his grace. In faith, we trust in the wisdom of God because that wisdom always puts us on the right path. And we thrive in the life that he has redeemed us for. We talk about Jesus as our great shepherd. But Jesus is also one who goes in front of us to help us to be violent against sin. We can only be, it can only be done in and through faith in who he is and what he has done by going to him, trusting in him, seeking forgiveness, and following after him. We do not consent to the enticement of sin when we look to Jesus. We trust in him when we follow him. That is what will save our life and our souls. So God gives us this wisdom here so we can learn about our sins and the danger of them so that we can better live in Christ. But the question here is, do, will we listen to this wisdom? Will we listen to it? Will we teach it? And will we model it for others? That's what we need to contend with. Pray with me.